Hello, and welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have another amazing guest to introduce to you now. Dr. Stefan von Vliet earned his PhD in kinesiology and community health from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign and received postdoctoral training at the Center for Human Nutrition in the Washington University at the St. Louis School of Medicine. As a former member of the Duke Molecular Physiology Institute within the Duke University School of Medicine, his work focused on the effects of primary compounds such as protein, carbohydrates, fats, and vitamins and minerals, and secondary compounds such as phytochemicals, polyphenols, and antioxidants, and the molecular mechanisms by which they impact human metabolism. His work also involves physical activity interventions and utilizes an integrative approach to improve human health. Dr. Van Vliet performs clinical and translational studies to evaluate the effects of whole food ingestion and physical activity interventions on body composition, physical function, inflammation, and intracellular signaling pathways involved in regulating muscle mass with advancing age. He is currently an assistant professor at Utah State University, where we are recording live. Dr. Van Viet, welcome to Balanced Body Radio and welcome to your own office. Yes, thank you so much, Casey. This is, this is fun because normally uh, we get to do this over uh, uh, Zoom or any other platform, but uh, now we're actually facing each other. So. It's great. Yeah. yeah, no, I love this. I'm so glad that you suggested it and insisted that I come up here. This facility is incredible. I knew from the GPS that it wasn't going to take me to, to right to the university, um, but I didn't know exactly where it was, and it didn't seem like it was out in the sticks too much where you'd be with the cows, although driving up here, there's cows everywhere here in Logan, Utah. Um, but this facility is incredible. Can you tell me about this complex? Yeah, so it's called the Bioinnovation Center, and this was built about 10 years ago uh, as part of what the, the state of Utah had, like a U-Star program. And that program was uh, designed to attract talent into uh, the, the state. And uh, as part of that, they built the center. And it has a big animal research facility, uh, which is uh, also down the hall. But where we are now is the Center for Human Nutrition Studies, which is a clinical research facility. So this is where we perform all of our uh, clinical trials. So we can do blood draws, DEXAs, body, other body composition, infusions, and things like that. So even for, for, for listeners that are not seeing it, it uh, picture, picture a doctor's office. Yeah, it's a very large and fancy looking doctor's office, I would say. It's it's really amazing, a cool place to do your research. I can definitely understand why you ended up here at Utah State. They are a wonderful research facility and you know that their work with agriculture and animal research is incredible. And and again, driving up here you can see exactly why. It's just the climate is perfectly situated for it. Yeah, absolutely. And uh especially the most important uh uh, product of the state is is livestock, meat and milk. Uh, it's because of the the rangelands and the, yeah the suitability to to graze here as a, as opposed to uh, we have a very short growing season for crops here. So yeah, the state is typically focused on that in the future. And yeah, it worked out for me because I've always had a big interest, especially over the last few years, in linking agriculture and human nutrition and do more sustainable production practices also translate to better animal welfare and uh, human nutrition and human health outcomes. And uh, I have an interest like that too in, in cropping systems in fruits and vegetables. And uh, so it worked out to kind of blend the, the clinical research with, uh, but at an agricultural school where I can have the best of both worlds. That's so cool. Wow. I absolutely love that. So you grew up in the Netherlands. I'm wearing my Max Verstappen hat to support. I also am wearing it because I needed to drive here very quick. Um, I was hoping I didn't get pulled over on the way up here, but um, wearing that to support you. I'm questioning whether you're actually from the Netherlands because I can pronounce your name. I am from the Netherlands. Yes. <laughs> born and raised. So I, uh, I 
uh, lived in the Netherlands for 25 years. So nice. this is my 11th year in the U.S. now. Oh, amazing. I really appreciate that I can uh, pronounce your name. Our, our mutual friend, Barry, Luigi Brex. I, I did a terrible job trying to pronounce it. I practiced and practiced. I couldn't get my mouth to work that it, way. It's, it's Leibrex. Leibrex. Yeah, you, you got to have the, the, the G and the, the rolling tongue for it. But, uh, no. uh, well, sorry to Barry. Tell me what it was like to grow up in the Netherlands, especially now that you've been able to live in the United States. You traveled around all over the world. What things do you look back on and now really appreciate Appreciate that you got to experience growing up in the Netherlands. So, I mean, growing up in the Netherlands, it was especially I grew up in the 90s and it was like a very calm time uh, in general, no pandemics, um, no economic crises. Uh, so, no, growing up in the Netherlands, it's a, it's a social country, it's good, good schools, uh, safe for children. So, it was always, yeah, I, I look uh, back on the Netherlands, the very fond memories. It was a great place to grow up. And uh, I grew up, so I was born in Rotterdam, which is the second largest city. So Amsterdam is what people are mostly familiar with. But then Rotterdam is the second largest city. It's a big port city. And and all my forefathers worked in the port and I kind of broke that chain. Um, But I grew up just what we'd be called a suburb in uh, in the U.S. So it was like 20 minutes out of downtown and uh, close. I didn't grow up on a farm, but I grew grew up close to agricultural lands. So Mm. there was a bunch of dairies uh, close to where I live. We had a big potato farm as Mm. well. Um, so it was a good time growing up and uh, very close to the coast. So in the summers, I have fond memories of spending a time at the beach. So I, uh, that's the only thing I miss here a little bit, uh, is, is <laughs> beach access. But uh, we have a beautiful lake about an hour north. So uh, Definitely. Were you much of a sports fan growing up? I was. Played soccer. Cool. I played soccer all throughout my youth. So yeah. uh, I played that until I was 16 and uh, I knew I wasn't going to make pros by then. So I did a few years of nothing and then started to lift weights, which I uh, continue up until this day. Cool. And initially you actually were pursuing a different area of research. You were actually going to go into business, I believe. I do have a business degree. So I I finished it. I have my undergraduate degree in business, but during, during my studies, you know, I I should have probably been reading business journals, but I used my uh, university account to look at physiology and nutrition journals. And uh, I didn't really think that there was like, uh, you know, I really know there was much of a job or future for me in that, in nutrition. But as I got more and more excited about it, I, I decided as well, I'll finish my bachelor's, get the business degree, but then I'll try to switch and, and pursue exercise and nutrition. So I was able to, I worked as a personal trainer for a bit, did some online certification, and I was actually able to do my master's in England in a small teaching school. It was mm. Chester University, a very small, tiny, uh, non-prestigious school. But the advantage was is that I was able to do my master's there, uh, mostly coursework driven, all out of research. But then I had the credentials. And then after that, I went back to the Netherlands. And then I volunteered in a muscle metabolism research lab for a while, quite a, a well-known one. Um, and that's where I really did a lot of, yeah, got a lot of my research experience. And then I moved through the ranks, uh, PhD, postdoc, and yeah. now as, as faculty. I wanted to talk to you about that initial research. Can you tell us that some of the things you learned about protein metabolism? Yeah. So initially when I started and I started this research in 2012 in protein metabolism, a lot of the prior research was on protein shakes, essentially. What was studied is the muscle protein synthetic response, the whey protein, the casein protein, the soy protein. But yeah, that's not really how we eat, right? Even as an athlete, you still get the majority of your protein from whole foods, not uh, protein shakes, or at least I hope not. So I started to study whole foods and, and I was interested in, okay, what, what if we eat, drink milk, eat meat, uh, eggs, and, and, and some whole food plant sources as well. 
So we did a lot of studies with uh, with Whole Foods. Uh, one study that pops to mind is we did uh, we call the meat milk study. It was beef and milk. Uh, and what was interesting about that is that so in amino acid metabolism research, it is notoriously hard to model which amino acids are coming from within the body or which ones are coming from the food source. Because once they're in the body, you can distinguish That's it. That's an interesting point. Yeah, leucine is leucine. Uh, it's a most well-known amino acid, important for, for uh, muscle anabolism. But the moment it's in the body, you don't know where it came from a plant, mm. whether it's from an animal, or if it was already available in your muscle-free pool. So what we did was, and at the initial study, we in, there's you can put a label or a tag, a stable isotope on an amino acid. It's basically it's just slightly heavier mass, so you can detect that on a, on a mass spec. Other than that, it's an identical molecule. So we labeled uh, essential amino acids, leucine and phenylalanine, but we actually labeled those intrinsically. And how you do that is by infusing a cow with those amino acids. So you you give that labeled amino acid to the cow, and then it comes into its meat and milk. And then if you consume those products, then you're 100% sure that it's coming from the food source as opposed to what in your body. Fascinating. Yeah. What did you learn? We learned that um, protein metabolism in the context of whole food source is a little bit more complicated because the leading thought at that time was is that amino acids are king. They dictate your muscle anabolic response. And having a faster protein source like whey will result in a higher muscle anabolic response. And that is true with isolated protein stores, with casein being slower and giving you more of a gradual muscle protein synthetic response. But then we did a study with meat and milk, and the milk was digested more slowly than the meat, but it gave a higher muscle anabolic response. So this idea of like that protein digestion and absorption rates, or the speed of that, is the uh, end-all, uh, be-all of dictating muscle protein synthesis could go out the door with that study. Wow. And then we did something similar like that afterwards with chickens, which is a lot easier because we mixed up the powder instead of infusing a cow, which we literally was uh, putting an IV in, uh, in, in the vein of a cow. Wow. The chicken feed, we were able to get the amino acid powder uh, dissolved in chicken feed, and then the chickens would just consume those, and we collected their eggs. So we did a study with whole eggs and egg whites, and especially in sort of the bodybuilding community, there was always this idea that whole eggs, they contain fat, they slow down. That's right. Protein digestion absorption, it limits maybe muscle building. Um, we did find that the fat slows down digestion absorption. That was well known, and we found that. So the amino acids after the whole eggs, I think, peaked after 120 minutes, and after egg whites only after 60 minutes. But the whole egg still gave a higher muscle anabolic response. And again, we attribute that to all the compounds that are in the yolk which are uh, vitamins, minerals are all found in New York, uh, other growth factors, bioactive compounds, phytochemicals, those are all found in New York. And the egg white is essentially is pure protein, but it doesn't contain much of anything else. So that tells you is that um, non-protein nutrients, vitamins, minerals, bioactive compounds, they can impact our metabolism and our muscle anabolic response. And that's what we found in that meat milk study. And that's what we found in the uh, whole egg versus egg white study as well. <laughs> It's so fascinating. So I'm still a personal trainer, but I remember I would, it would have been about that time, 2014, 2015, when I first came across that study, I obviously didn't know you at the time, but like that, that changed everything for what we were telling people. Like we were suggesting that, yeah, like not only will you not be able to eat as much protein because the fat is going to fill you up, but it is going to last, you know, it, you're not going to absorb it as quickly. And so take the egg whites because you're going to be able to get much, much, much more protein. And that completely shifted the way that we 
thought about protein, but also about the way we thought about fat. And and kind of at the time was when we were just coming out of the the age where fat was bad. There, you know, people started using the word healthy fat, and you're like, the hell is a healthy fat? There's no healthy fat. It's all bad. So that really changed our our viewing on things. It's pretty cool to be part of such an amazing study. Yeah, no, it was really fun. And I was surprised too. And I'll tell you a funny story is, is that we ran uh, all the, so we studied muscle protein synthesis by as how we would picture it. We take a small piece of muscle from someone's thigh. So these were resistance trained athletes. We had them do uh, a bunch of leg presses, uh, leg extensions. And then uh, we took a piece of muscle out of their thigh. It's a very small piece of muscle. So it uses... <laughs> Painful though, right? No, no. It's on the local anesthetic. Ah, so, so you don't feel it. Got it. You feel pressure, but not, not pain. Um, so we did that and uh, we took muscle biopsies multiple times before exercise and then after eating and exercise. And you can measure basically the rate at which you incorporate those labeled amino acids that came from the chicken eggs um, or from the meat and the milk. And what we did when we initially, when I initially saw, uh, got the data, we, we got it analyzed in the core facilities, typically with a mass spec. It's such an expensive piece of equipment that it's a core facility. Um, so the uh, uh, person running it, it was just a, a professor there running the core. He was blinded. And then when I got the data back that the whole eggs were higher, I thought, oh, this must have been a mistake <laughs> because I didn't believe it either because that wasn't, was you know, indeed, fat delays digestion absorption. Um, expect a, a lower anabolic response, not the opposite. Yeah. So we had to, we reran everything again and double checked everything because I was like, oh, yeah, this is there. It must have been a mistake. The samples must have been switched or something. <laughs> Turns out the samples weren't switched and uh, it was in fact uh, the, the case. And then interesting thing is always that, and that's also the golden rule of science, if you can think of it or find it, there's a good chance someone else has studied it in the past as well. Mm. So I went back into the literature and actually there were already studies from the 60s and 70s in animals suggesting that things like B vitamins and, and we kind of already noticed minerals, but also bioactive compounds, maybe microRNAs impact muscle metabolism and the mTOR pathway, which is a main anabolic pathway. And then there was a study that was done by, uh, by, by Kevin Tipton, uh, was an, an amazing researcher and unfortunately passed away last year. Um, he had done some work with whole milk and skinned milk. And while he didn't measure muscle protein synthesis, he measured what's something called muscle net balance, basically the amount of amino acids that, that are incorporated into the... Uh, it, it's a lot of modeling, but you're still measuring muscles going into the amino acids uh, or the amino acids going into the muscle. And he found that with whole milk, there was greater muscle amino acid retention so our findings weren't that unusual in the sense that other researchers had found the same thing. And, and talking to, to, to Kevin Tipton about this like years later, he, he also said, yeah, at that point, I didn't have an explanation for it. And we also don't know exactly why whole eggs give a higher muscle anabolic response. But the most uh, reasonable explanation is, is that the yolk or the fat, it contains so many nutrients, uh, most you know, fat-soluble uh, vitamins, uh, a lot of phytochemicals are in there, a lot of microRNAs. So the fat can also, well, we think of something as bad, but it's also very nutritious, right? That's probably why we always, in a way, seek out fat because yeah. it can be a very important source of micronutrients too. So we think that's the reason why it gave a high anabolic response. Fascinating. Wow. I wish I, I wish my mom had found that research before she fed me nothing but skim milk for years and years and years. It's awful. <laughs> that, it. that was my life too. I mean, <laughs> I, growing up... Um, my parents obviously wanted to feed me, you know, healthy food. So we had indeed skim milk. Uh, I could get one egg in the weekend, right? Because uh, the idea was that cholesterol yep. will, uh, will clog, clog up my arteries. And then uh, uh, also at some point, I remember 
growing up. Early on, I ate butter, and then all of a sudden, butter was gone, and we ate margarine. So. <laughs> you can relate. Yeah. Yeah, that's so interesting. I was going to ask you that, actually. I think all of us come into the world of nutrition with some kind of a bias. And, you know, when I was trained as a personal trainer and as a nutrition coach, you learn about, you know, lots of vegetables, lots of whole grains, lean meats. And, you know, I, I'm more on the carnivore side now. We interview a lot of carnivore guests. And, you know, when I'm interviewing somebody who has done a carnivore diet, is a carnivore, you know, quote unquote carnivore at the time, the interviews are pretty easy because we can, we can just say like, Oh, just eat meat. Don't eat plants. Plants are bad, whatever. When I'm talking to you and preparing for an interview like this, there's so much more nuance to it. And, and one of the things you say is like, some of these things are not essential in the diet, but they might provide benefit, which I think is a really great nuance. And I never want to get locked into one little box. And so I guess I want to know like, what, what, kind of biases did you have when you first started your research that it maybe changed over time? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I'd say initially when I started research, I mean, I, I came at it from sort of the exercise standpoint, right? And I think I overestimated the impact of supplements. Mm. So probably my bias was in a way that oh, supplements actually are work. And I'm not saying they don't work, but uh, your diet has a far more dramatic effect on, uh, on, on your ability to gain muscle, ability to stay healthy, right? And uh, so that was one of the biases I had. And we actually did a study also in uh, 2016, 2017, where we looked at CLA, conjugated linoleic acid. And it's, it's I think it may, well, you can tell me this better, but it was a thing for a while, especially also in the bodybuilding community, right? Yeah. We were taking fish oil, CLA, yeah. and uh, things like that. Uh, there had been some work done in animals to suggest that it's good to improve muscle gain and, and maybe fat loss. We studied muscle protein synthesis uh, with long-term uh, supplementation or eight weeks, I should say, and they were complete null results. Like nothing happened compared to the placebo, which was corn oil. Mm. And it so that was, for instance, one of the things that uh, was an interesting finding. And we were able to publish uh, the study still. Obviously, the fund there afterwards didn't give us, uh, wrote us another check because, uh, you know, it was a, a null finding and... Uh, but that was uh, that was one of the things I should say, like early on, like pulling a little more faith in supplements. And then as I also got deeper into this, like and, and understand as metabolism better, as I progressed through my career from a PhD student to to a postdoc and uh, assistant professor now, is that you know supplements they're usually I mean they're isolated and purified, right? But we now know that metabolism is so complex it requires a lot of cofactors, uh, you know, vitamin C and iron metabolism, zinc and copper are intimately related, and uh, um, we know that and and there's probably a bunch of other factors too in certain proteins, fatty acids, uh, amino acids, phytochemicals they can all aid in the absorption and digestion of, of micronutrients. So in food sources, for instance, one example to give you, for instance, carotenoids, beta carotene, right? This is a supplement that's sometimes used and was studied for maybe anti-cancer purposes and of a null result. Well, in foods, there's rarely, you don't find beta carotene by itself. You find it with 30, 40 other carotenoids and other nutrients that can probably help with the digestion absorption. So absolutely getting uh, nutrients from whole foods is probably a lot better and it's in one of the biases that I sort of let drop after a while is, is that, yeah, you know, foods are so, foods are so complex yeah, and, and, and the sum of its nutrients, uh, it's, it's more than the sum of the individual nutrients. Yeah, absolutely. Well, supplements is a great example of that. And yeah, I remember the days, like it was no question. If you were working with me, you were on a multivitamin period, no question. 
fish oil. You're on fish oil, period. Whey protein supplement. No, like all of these things that we thought we could just isolate and give to people to show benefit. And you're right. Like I'm not totally against supplements and I hope people take them, but I want them to have a very specific need for a very specific supplement and have some research behind it. Something like creatine for a specific reason. But, but yeah, we have, we have this idea with supplements and with foods that we can isolate out parts of the foods and we look at a nutrition label and you know, we see like 10 or 15 things and that's it. But you're right. It, based on your research and everything you've learned, there is so much more going on with the food that we eat. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's about 15 nutrients that routinely appear on nutrition facts panels, protein, fat, carbohydrates, and then sugar, cholesterol, and a handful of vitamins and minerals. It's only four that uh, four vitamins and minerals that need to be put on uh, nutrition facts panels. And then the USDA database, or if you go online, you can go look at the USDA nutrient uh, reference database. It only catalogs routinely 150 nutrients. But we know that sort of the food metabolome or the, the food biochemical complexity probably contains tens of thousands of compounds, if not hundreds of thousands, especially when we start to take into account phytochemicals, which are uh, polyphenols, flavonoids, uh, terpenes, uh, tocopherols, etc., then we're probably going into the hundreds of thousands. So when we are dumbing foods down to proteins or fats, we are really missing the the, the forest for the trees because wow. we're looking at an individual tree and we know that that food is more like a, you know, Amazonian rainforest. Yeah, that's that's amazing. So with all of these compounds that, that, you know, a layperson would not know about, are they contributing significantly to somebody's health, in your opinion? In my opinion, yes, because I would say that um, if we look at an interesting topic, there is phytochemicals, which have been studied. These are plant secondary metabolites. We call them plant secondary metabolites because they were not essential per se to the plant survival. Although you could argue that a plant secreting certain compounds and is protected from herbivory is critical to survival, but these were things that they were basically not vitamins, not amino acids, uh, not fats. So we call them secondary metabolites, thinking that what we didn't really know what to do, they're secondary. But as we are finding out now, and it, it is tricky if we look at the nuances of how nutrition studies are done, is that uh, it's always, always hard to say something beyond pure reasonable doubt. Yeah. Because we can do randomized controlled trials for a couple of weeks or a few months, and we can do epidemiological studies for longer periods of time, but people do a thousand other things that can impact their uh, their health in, in long-term epidemiological studies. And in a randomized controlled trial, you, you cannot measure heart outcomes. If someone develops heart disease during my study, I'll probably have some explaining to do uh, to the IRB. <laughs> That's right. So uh, in, in a four-week randomized controlled trial. So that is important to know. But yes, I think collectively there is now evidence mounting that uh, phytochemicals, uh, that are found in mainly fruits and vegetables, but also in uh, in animal sourced foods, especially when the animals consuming biodiverse forage, so grass fed beef, for instance, and milk. That these compounds uh, do appear in our blood or metabolites of that, and yes, they uh, in short term studies you can measure some impacts on inflammation, and you can in long term studies they are associated with better metabolic health, but. Again, there the nuances, as you can point out with long-term studies, is that people that eat lots of fruits and vegetables probably do a whole host of other things uh, beneficial to their health. And fruits and vegetables also contain other compounds that yeah. uh, can be healthy. So, But one thing that's very interesting, and, and uh, the uh, Academy of, of, of Nutrition 
recently, for the first time, gave an official recommendation on flavanols and, and recommended an intake. I think by head it was 600 milligrams a day uh, could be uh, associated with, with good health. But also in randomized controlled trials were associated with improvements in lipoprotein profiles, some inflammatory markers. So, uh, so it's getting more recognition. Uh, my point being is that sort of the whole food matrix this idea, I mean, we studied vitamins, studied minerals, amino acids, but I think we're getting, not, not enough yet, but there is becoming a healthier appreciation of the complexity of foods and all the thousands of chemicals that they provide. Yeah, that's amazing. Okay, so on that note, you said phytochemicals, which I believe if I open up most textbooks, they're probably going to say that. There are chemicals that come from plants for many, many reasons. Could be defense, could be you know just for the plant itself, whatever. If I ask a carnivore what that is, they're going to say those are phytotoxins. These are things that you consume that are actively bad for you. If I ask somebody who is pro-eating you know, a, a plant-based diet, they're going to say these are phytonutrients. These cause hormetic stress. Wh what do you think about that? Where, where are you on that spectrum? Well, I think in both cases, could be true. Some compounds yeah. uh, are phytotoxins, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, some cyanide uh, compounds, and and you know the most important thing we know is like if you eat certain berries or certain mushrooms, they contain high levels of toxins, yeah. right? And so then you could say they're phytotoxins, and the dose also is important in moderate amounts. As you mentioned, hormetic stress is part of it. Uh, we can obtain benefit from certain phytochemicals. But in maybe in very high amounts, they can become toxic. Uh, things like that could be, uh, for instance, uh, uh, terpenes are, are, you know, in moderate amounts can be healthy for us. In higher amounts, they can be toxic. And so it, it becomes nuanced very quickly. Yeah. And what was interesting about the carnivore is, is that if they're eating grass-fed meat or milk, they are getting these phytochemicals in through uh, – through the meat and the milk as well, because yeah. they are being concentrated also in uh, in, in in the products of uh, of animals. Uh, just like you know, if if you ate a uh, uh, very a lot of fruits and vegetables, we could measure phytochemicals in your blood and your urine. If the animal and also in your tissues, in your in your muscles, if the animal is eating a lot of uh, phytochemically rich forage, then those phytochemicals also become available in its tissue and its milk and. Uh, milk is actually very similar to blood if you look at it like in terms yeah. of like the, the composition of that and some of the things that you find circulating in the in the blood is, yeah. is related to uh, uh, you find it in the milk too so wow. so it becomes nuanced very quickly and it indeed does. I agree that some some things can be can be toxic but uh, yeah there's also I, I'd say we can obtain benefits and though these nutrients are non-essential it doesn't mean they're not important yeah. for our health I love that. No, I love that. We've hosted Sally Norton on our show twice. She talks about oxalates. She just came out with her new book, Toxic Superfoods. And I'm listening to it and I'm, I'm sitting there like nodding along to all of it. Like, yeah, this is, this makes a lot of sense. But, but again, like there's so much nuance to that kind of research and she admits it. She said it's, it's kind of like the dose makes the poison. It's like, is it a good idea to eat spinach? That really depends. Are you doing what I did when I was training and putting, you know, three fistfuls of spinach in a blender with beets and, you know, almond milk every single morning? I, I don't think that was the best thing, but, but what it, what about, you know, cooking foods or treating foods or sprouting things? Like there's ways that we can basically make these plant foods safer for us to consume. Is that the way you understand it? That is absolutely true yeah no i agree like uh, eating a kill smoothie every morning raw kill i don't think is a good idea either but you know having some some cooked kale uh, once a week and some other dark green leafy vegetables yeah absolutely and and also this, you could take into account the seasonality aspect but yeah i mean if if like you said you threw in uh, three handfuls of uh, 
kale or spinach in your in your morning smoothie, totally uncooked and things like that, then yeah, I'd say you some people could have uh, some uh, oxalate buildup or kidney stones or things like that, right? You can you can uh, develop some of those issues and uh, uh, maybe you know we, we know oxalates can impair some of the absorption of of minerals as well, so. It's usually, and I, that, I think that's human nature. It's like we like to see things black and white, right? Yeah. And yeah. then it's like, oh, uh, yeah, taking a spinach smoothie every day is not good for, uh, for us. But it doesn't mean we, we cannot consume spinach ever. Yeah, so. yeah. No, that's a really good point. And the other tricky thing is if you're going to have a problem with oxalate, it's not going to be, well, you might have a little bit of an acute response. If you have too much, you might notice some belching or gas, or you might wake up with some crusties around your eyes. But the real problems aren't going to come it, you know, until 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, it's similar to, you know, obesity or diabetes. Like you, it's, it's hard to like know when is too much. And so I think just being aware of those things and making smarter choices of how much, how much you prepare, knowing how much different, you know, toxins are in plants and then ways that you can deal with them would be a nice way to be a, a true omnivore and really consume both and get the benefits from both. So that was going to be my next question is based on the research that you've seen and that you've conducted, what are some of the, the benefits of, of plant chemicals, plant, plant nutrients, I guess we'll say in that context. Yeah, no, we know a lot of the plant nutrients. I mean, it's, uh, especially if you look at, uh, well, ultimately most uh, nutrients will always come, uh, come from plants, right? Even if it's in the, in the animal, like there's some an nutrients like creatine and taurine that are almost exclusive to animal source foods or, or found in higher amounts of animal source foods. But I mean, ultimately the animal, right. also obtains its, its nutrients from, uh, from plants. Um, that's not to say that there's no strong benefits to eating animal source foods. I, I sincerely think there yeah. is, especially in, in, in moderate quantities. I think it's uh, very compatible with, uh, with good health. And uh, it's also, again, one of those uh, nuanced discussions that is not, uh, not black and white. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, phytochemicals can have antioxidant and anti-inflammatory effects. Uh, most of that, I must admit, has been studied in animal models, but there's also several human randomized controlled trials mm. to suggest that these compounds can have antioxidant, anti-inflammatory effect broadly. They can also modulate signaling pathways uh, related to, to insulin signaling. Um, so they might have some anti-diabetic effects. They can potentially, at least in animal models, and again, in uh, lab models, in, in in vitro models. So let's say we have a cancer cell line and we throw a uh, chlorogenic acid on it or caffeic acid, which are found in high amounts in coffee, for instance, then there may be some anti-tumor activities to that. Mm. Not to say that coffee uh, cures cancer, far from. Uh, that's something we can hardly say ever about foods, yeah. and especially in humans, it's notoriously hard because we do a thousand other things that give us cancer or can protect us from cancer. But at least we have some idea about these compounds in amounts that we presumably would get them in our diet uh, from... Uh, in vitro models, so petri dishes with, with cancer cells, mm. or maybe some uh, uh, cells from from our pancreas or beta cells, which, which play a role in insulin uh, production. That these can uh, have a beneficial effect. So that's usually how it's studied, and mm. then you can take it into animal model. And then when you go to humans, it becomes very messy. Yeah, because then it's uh, yeah, humans are so different, and uh, it, they're hard to lock up. And even if you lock them up, then uh, you know if we have a mouse uh, line, they're all uh, sort of brothers and sisters. Yeah, humans. Uh, yeah, humans are, are so different, and uh, yeah, we know in, that there's such large intra-individual differences in nutrient metabolism. Some people are much more efficient in converting, for instance, beta carotene, the plant precursor, to retinol, which is vitamin A that's actually usable by our bodies, yep. and um, 
we know the same thing. Some people convert uh, ALA to DHA and EPA, the omega-3 fatty acids, much more readily than other people do. Some people have difference in iron metabolism. I have to be careful that they don't get uh, hemochromatosis and mm-hmm. things like that. So in humans, it becomes notoriously hard also to uh, attribute something to single foods. We sometimes try, but we are moving, I think, also more into dietary patterns in the human nutrition space as well. Yeah, that's so interesting. I always have to remind myself too, the nerds that want to talk about this and think about this, maybe they're carnivore, maybe they're vegan, maybe they're you doing the research. What is that? Like a 0.1% of the population, that's hardly anybody. Like most people could benefit from eating more fruits and vegetables because they're grubhubbing at all their meals and snacking on candy all day. Like we need to keep it in context that all of us could be doing a little bit better and the research is fun and, and interesting and we can debate on, you know, is this harmful? Is this helpful? But at the end of the day, like we need to kind of keep that in mind. Yeah. If you're probably thinking about it, you're already like a pretty, you know, pretty far ahead. And, uh, indeed, you know, uh, that that's usually always the case. It's also the foods that you're not eating, right? Yeah. If you're very health conscious carnivore and, and have like uh, or, or a vegan for that matter, you have a well-designed diet. I mean, Personally, I think on a population-based level, most people probably do best falling on omnivorous spectrum, but we must also be realistic here, especially on, on vegan diets. You have a much more research on it, at least, is yeah. that, yeah, people, some people, some parts of the population can be on a vegan diet, be completely healthy, live long and healthy lives. Yep. Um, anecdotally, there seem to be carnivores that are able to do it too, and um, there's not a lot of modern research about it, but yeah, you know, like sort of ecological studies on, 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 you know, the Inuits or, or, uh, people in Mongolia, uh, that live a, uh, a lifestyle of pastoralism. Yeah. Do, do they have access to up in the mountains, well, milk and blood of the animal yeah. and, and meat, not many plants growing. And yeah, uh, yeah I mean, people have been doing that for many generations and uh, maybe you haven't done as much scientific studies on it, but maybe it sounds weird coming from a scientist, but Sometimes we put scientific studies on the pedestal and, and forget sort of uh, empirical observations as well. But usually science or hypotheses are generated from empirical observations that we then t- test in a lab. Yeah. Well, one of the things I love that you say with your content is like, yeah, yes, we need the science. We need to do these studies. We're forgetting wisdom. We're forgetting the things that we knew generationally then passed down that are regional, that are, you know, we didn't move around and travel as, around as much as, as we do today. And so we lose the the, the feeling of the cycle of the seasons and what grows. And if this goes bad, how can we fix it using natural solutions? And so again, there's so much nuance to it. Yeah. And I, I see that mostly that, that point of like wisdom, we mostly see that in agriculture, right? In farmers, farmers are doing things that, okay, they see, okay, if I do this, my uh, forages are better, my pasture are better, my animals are healthier, right? When they maybe use regenerative practices or what's called regenerative agriculture. It's a hard term. And I usually say agroecology, but then people go agro what? It basically means like sort of nature-based solutions to farming. Uh, But regenerative agriculture is the same thing. It's trying to make things better than uh, than you left them. Um, But you see it there is that a lot of times we, you know, we may not have a lot of evidence currently on uh, like how soil health impacts forage quality, animal health. But farmers know this from what they do and it's called wisdom. And they may not always have scientific studies to prove it, but it doesn't mean that we should then discard it. And I think sometimes, I mean, of course, in policy, it's important that we focus on scientific studies, but there's also almost so much we can do in science. And usually uh, it's, it's interesting that, uh, 
yeah, we kind of sort of ignore that wisdom, also indigenous wisdom and things like yeah. that, like managing the land and, and doing a good job. And we may not always have the studies and we don't exactly know how it works, but yeah, if you have better, you know, you're making improvements in your soil, then yeah, your plants grow better, the yeah. animals healthier. You might not have the studies to prove it yeah. per se, but everyone can see it. It's like, uh, yeah, we don't, you know, if I uh, ask you what what's the color of the sky, well, at the moment it's white because it's snowing, but yep. it's it's blue, right? Yep. And then I, I would ask you then, well, where's the scientific evidence that it's blue? Yep. You don't you don't need it. It's common sense. It's yes, exactly. And it used to, some of these things used to be common sense, but um, we sometimes forget common sense yeah. a little bit. Yeah. So I bought a quarter cow from a rancher um, a few months ago and I, I really had to twist his arm, but I got him to come on our show. And he's, he admits he's not an expert in human nutrition. He's not an expert in, you know, ethics. He's not an expert in planetary health, but it was a nice opportunity for me just to ask anecdotally, like, what do you think about these things? Like, do you think your family is happy? They're eating cream and cows and like, they seem like they're really energetic and well-behaved and like what he thought about ethics and whether, you know, his, his ranch was destroying the, you know, atmosphere around him that can probably hardly breathe with all the cows around. And, and it was interesting to hear, you know, that, that he had wisdom. He knew that land. He knew all of those things that you talked about more than you and I, if we went and, and, you know, just visited for a few days. And he said that he kept a journal with all the weather patterns every single year and just kind of wrote like on this day, it snowed for the first time and he keeps it all year round. And I just, I, I told him this and I, I really believe this. If I took that journal away, I'll bet he would be fine. I'll bet he would still know all of those things because that is somebody who's in that environment, in that atmosphere and learning all the time. Yeah, absolutely. And it, the farmer did that because he was forced or to do that because he knew it would improve his business. If he had done that as part of a PhD, then it would have been considered science. Huh? So, <laughs> there you go. So it's also important to note. And uh, it's good to your point because we do a lot of field work at, at farms over the grazing season and uh, visit a lot of uh, uh, local farmers, but I've also been in North, uh, North Dakota this past year. In the past, uh, when I was at Duke University, we did a lot of work with in the farms in the Southeast, North Carolina, Alabama. And... Visiting these farms and collecting forages, collecting soil, getting their meat and testing it. You know, when I stand there and listening to the farmer, and I always learn so much from farmers, is that um, I stand there and, and, and look around and there's this beautiful biodiversity, flowers, uh, very high native grasses. I mean, it just looks like a beautiful ecosystem. I cannot, you know, and these are grass-fed beef systems. I cannot help but thinking that we're not destroying the earth that way. And that's something I grapple with too, because if I then go back to my office and, and look at scientific studies on, on grass-fed beef, then I can convince myself it's the absolute worst thing for the environment mm. because of the emissions, right? Yeah. Um, now, not to go too far down a rabbit hole because, you know, we don't often take into account carbon sequestration potential, uh, improvements to soil health, biodiversity that could be uh, also, especially for small, small herbivores. Um but that is one thing that we often don't take into account. So we have like this sort of a simplified narrative. We have this focus on emissions. Yeah, and I could stand there and I'm thinking like, okay, we're destroying the earth here. Yeah. At least if I have a scientific paper next to it, but then with my own eyes, I'm thinking like, hmm, you know, grapple with this because yeah. it does seem like there's improvements in biodiversity. The land has been uh, uh, improving over time. There's a farmer we go up uh, a couple of years in a row now up in Idaho. His name is Glenn Alzinga, and he grazes public rangelands. And, uh, I mean, he does a great job because he hurts his animals. And I think it, it's definitely also the way management practices are so important. Like what some farmers do is they let their cows out over the grazing season and they get them back again in October and check up on them from time to time. What he does, he hurts them on uh, horseback. So he does sort of the, the 
migratory patterns that that maybe the traditional bison had, wow. right? Like they were always on the move. They graze, and especially out west. And this is also if you read older writings about bison, bison would sometimes graze uh, here in the western rangelands. They would graze a certain spot once every two years, once every three years, and that's kind of what he's doing too. He grazes a spot for a few minutes every two to three years. Wow. And it just keeps them uh, uh, on the move. And it's, it's quite impressive because you'd stand there talking to him. And then uh, a couple of minutes later, you're like, where, where the hell did the cows go? <laughs> and they were just already like, you know, wow. up, uh, moved further. So, so it's definitely also important uh, uh, to, to realize that. But yeah, I mean, I do, I can understand the concerns, of course, also, because I think historically we have done uh, a bad job in, in, in managing the lands. And of course, we, you know, there used to be a lot of land. We thought we sort of have infinite resources. Yeah. Turns out they're quite finite, with, yeah. uh, as we are learning now with the water drying up and, and you know, uh, dwindling forages, monocultures, even here on Western Rangelands. If you look, then you think like, oh, like how can we ever mess this up? There's so much land. Yeah. Well, we, we can. We can. So, so that's also an important uh, uh, part to, uh, to note. And uh, yeah, I mean, what we typically see though in, in that work is that, yeah, farmers that do more of these regenerative practices, rotational grazing, not overgrazing, leaving biodiverse forages. Yeah, the, the animals are healthy and the meat is more nutrient dense. Yeah. That's amazing. Okay. So on that note, something you mentioned earlier, I really wanted to talk about the difference between us consuming some of the plants that we consume versus running them through animals who are arguably better at using them and taking them. And then us eating the animal to get those nutrients. Is there much of a difference there? Can, can, can animals bioaccumulate lots of nutrients that then we can absorb? Yes, absolutely. They can absorb, they can bioaccumulate nutrients from plants that we can then absorb. Absolutely. And, uh, what is interesting about animals is that animals can consume vegetation that you and I cannot consume, right? It might be uh, because we don't have the ability to digest that. We cannot digest grasses, but also certain forbs and shrubs that we know maybe contain some medicinal terpenes, but it also contains phytotoxins. So we might try to eat that plant and uh, we get a horrible stomach ache. Yeah. So there's, it's, it's a, we could not uh, obtain those nutrients otherwise. So we get some, ex- some unique nutrients that we would otherwise have not have access to. So it's a way of further increasing the phytochemical richness. But I should uh, preface this by saying this, is that fruits and vegetables are the primary source of phytochemicals in our diet. Uh, getting your beta carotene from a carrot, as opposed to grass-fed beef, Getting it from the carrot is a much better idea than from mm. the grass-fed beef. Gotcha. Even though you can find beta-carotene in grass-fed beef. Um, but beef can contain certain nutrients that would otherwise be hard to get for us and things that we would otherwise not uh, readily uh, consume. We found certain terpenes, certain uh, polyphenols that uh, uh, you would otherwise not be able to, to get in readily amounts in, in your diet. So it's certainly another way of getting some more unique compounds in our diet and further increasing the phytochemical richness. Gotcha. I just learned recently that before we um, abolished marijuana, it, it, it's a weed, right? It grows everywhere. And it, in the West, I heard this was in Cal- uh, Colorado, I believe, the cows would eat marijuana leaves and, and end up with cannabinoids in the meat. I thought that was so fascinating. And the argument was like, that's one of the things we're kind of missing and we, we could benefit from today if cows were still doing that. I thought that was really interesting. Well, it's super interesting that you mentioned that because things like sagebrush and other uh, uh, forbs and shrubs, they contain high amounts of terpenes. Mm. And terpenes are studied in... in uh, uh uh, from wheat and cannabis, right? Yeah. And it's one of the things why we think that there may be, you know, like uh, some 
benefits to getting those terpenes. Yeah. So you can get those in uh, from cannabis, but you can also obtain those from animals that consume that those things. So there's a way. Yeah, it's interesting because we are doing some uh, some analysis on on these terpenes, and we're using largely similar extraction methods and and uh, procedure methods that uh, a lab that's studying uh, wheat would do as well. Wow. We just do it in milk. Wow. So fascinating. Yeah. Wow. My first thought, and I blurted this out was like, wow, those are some pretty chill cows out there just chewing on marijuana all day. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> so interesting. Okay. So speaking of meat, this is another area of research for you. You you've looked directly into the difference between grass fed, grass finished beef versus grass fed grain finished beef. What are the differences? The differences are far beyond omega three fatty acids. So okay. most people think that there's only the differences are in omega-3 fatty acids. Yep. But okay, that's sort of because uh, that's the only thing that had been studied in the past routinely. We did some uh, metabolomics profiling. So what metabolomics does, it looks at metabolites. Many of these metabolites can serve as nutrients to us. So they're products of metabolism, be it the metabolism of a plant, an animal. And many of these have nutritive value to us. So we looked at... Uh, it depends on how far we take it, how many pieces of equipment we use, but anywhere from 500 to 1,500 compounds in uh, meat and milk. And what we're finding is, is that we find about a 40 to 50% difference in metabolite abundance, in nutrient abundance between grass-fed and grain-fed. Mm. Differences are, of course, in omega-3 fatty acids. What we're also finding is that, and this makes sense now down the line to me, is that long-chain saturated fatty acids also become enriched. And long-chain saturated fatty just like the omega-3 fatty acids, which are long-chain yeah. polyunsaturated fatty acids, some of these long-chain saturated fatty acids like uh, behenic acid, uh, arachidic acid, these are um, associated with a decreased risk of metabolic disease. So saturated fat isn't saturated fat isn't saturated fat either. There may be the same amount of saturated fat in uh, milk or meat from a grass-fed and grain-fed cow. We know that the total fat and total saturated fat is usually similar, but the fatty acid profile shifts to a more favorable one that at least population-based studies suggest that having higher amounts of these in the diet, these very long-chain saturated fatty acids, are neutral or associated with decreased risk of metabolic disease. So it might be a healthier saturated fatty acid profile. That's one thing we're finding. Then we're finding these phytochemicals from the plant, these antioxidants accumulating, um, which are... A large number of like polyphenols, tocopherols, uh, terpenes, uh, carotenoids that, that broadly have a uh, uh, beneficial metabolic effect and may lower our risk of metabolic disease. We don't know it yet in the context of, of meat, um, but we do know that they appear in there, in, wow. in, in the food source. And then there's also things like things you probably don't want uh, that are lower. For instance, advanced glycation and lipoxidation end products. Uh, for instance, 4-HNE is one that's most commonly studied. And it's one of the reasons why meat is considered a carcinogen. It's because of these high amounts of 4-HNE. And they may get formed when uh, uh, there's high heat cooking and things like that. But what we found was, and it was also kind of stunning to me, is that grass-fed beef contains lower amounts of these compounds, advanced glycation end products, advanced lipoxidation end products. And if you think about it, an advanced glycation end products, glycation, it's coming from glucose, sugar. So if the animal is metabolically healthier and eats less maybe uh, grains 
and has uh, better glucose metabolic health, then you have less advanced glycation end products. So it's already a way of by what you feed the animal, animal health already impacts some of these uh, detrimental compounds. So a healthier animal has less advanced glycation end products to begin with already. So it's also a way of, of uh, sort of making meat healthier that way. So you get more of the good stuff, but also less of the bad stuff. And this idea that nutrition and animal health, they're the same thing. They are absolutely the same thing because we like to spread those out, right? But the animal is consuming those forages, not for us, but for itself, right? And it's producing these compounds for itself, for their own health. So a healthier animal is a, a healthier piece of meat, just like you would think that is the case with a human as well, that it eats a healthier diet. Yeah. So interesting. Okay. So some people would say, you know, for the price, for the taste, there, there's not a great enough difference between conventional raised beef versus grass-fed, grass-finished beef. Thoughts, your opinion, is it is it like really you should buy the highest quality meat that you should afford? Is there a big enough difference between the two? And again, there's so much context here. It depends. Where, where are you in the country? What kind of feed was the cow given? I know down by where I live, like there's there's a place that sells grass-fed, grass-finished beef. I can't eat it. It doesn't taste very good to me. Because I, and I don't know what they feed the cows. And so that's a non-starter for me. So I, again, I understand there's a lot of complexity to that. There, there is a lot of complexity. And to give you an example, we found up to a uh, 12-fold variation in phytochemicals in, in beef. Wow. Grass-fed beef is a little bit of a wild west because the variation there was like tenfold or so. And in grain-fed beef, it was threefold because it's more standardized grain feeding. But what we found was is that the best grain-fed beef was still a lot better than the worst grass-fed beef. Mm. But the best grass-fed beef was still a lot more phytochemically rich than the best grain-fed beef. But even amongst grain-fed beef, there was quite a lot of variation. And we know that some of the farmers that we worked with, I sometimes jokingly call it an artisanal feedlot, it's like a, you know, a farmer that may finish their animals on some whole corn and alfalfa for 30 or 60 days uh, just to get sort of the, that, that flavor, that marbling in yeah. there. Uh, the animals have quite a bit of, sort of space still and then sometimes free choice access so they can regulate how much they, they eat. So that could be a very good way. And I, I'm not against grain feeding per se. It's a great way of, of, of uh, getting byproducts through an animal and yeah. upcycle that, right? Um but sometimes we take something that's good and then we take it to the extreme and, and maybe start to feed 80% corn. And maybe that's not ideal for an, uh, for, for an animal, as, as at least if you have to paint with broad strokes, then yeah, we can see that as compared to an animal that's out on pasture, has plenty of space to walk, can uh, have biodiverse forages. They look metabolically healthier than a feedlot finished animal. Mm. Doesn't mean that per se grain fed beef is unhealthy or something like that. that. That's, you know, we don't, there's no real studies on that at the moment, no randomized yeah. controlled trials. There's no epidemiological studies asking people, hey, are you consuming grass fed beef and relating that to cardiovascular health outcomes? One issue I can see there is that people that eat grass fed beef probably do a hundred other things beneficial to their health. Right. So it, it might be an interesting study to do in the future. And, and then we might find this weird paradox that my hypothesis would be that we find this weird paradox that grass-fed beef is associated with a decreased risk of cardiovascular disease and it might not have nothing to do with the beef. But anyway, um, we are doing randomized controlled trials in that area, but we must also be realistic is that if uh, you switch out, if a fast food restaurant switched out their feedlot beef with grass-fed beef as part of an ultra-processed meal with hamburger buns and fries and yeah. Coke, 
it's not going to make much of a difference. That's so, right. so, and also I think when someone's eating, you know, a very healthy whole foods diet, I'd say, yeah, buy the meat that you can afford. Sure. There may be benefits also in, uh, from, from animal welfare. I think that's pretty clear if yeah. you buy, uh, um, and that's not always the case. I don't want to pay with brushstrokes because I've also been to grass-fed beef farms. Where it's like meat animals probably a little bit on the fat because the, you know, you're there in June and the, the, the it's completely overgrazed. And there's just no fresh forages for the animal and they're, you know, maybe wow. not looking as good. So it's, it, it's, it's, there's always nuances, yep. like maybe the farmer you describe, but in general, yes. I mean, I'd say buy the, the, the meat that you can afford and, and I, I'm no, by any means like, you know, yeah, it's, it's something I often grapple with because yeah, if I look at the data, I'm thinking like, okay, this grass fed beef is more nutrient dense. Uh, the animal looks metabolically healthier. It is clear. Um, if you can afford it, absolutely do it, but we don't want to turn this into some sort of elitism either. Right. right. So, so I think, uh, if you are, you know, hardworking family and, 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 you know, you want to feed your children some, some, some healthy animal source, some animal source foods, then yeah, buy what, what, what you can afford. And, uh, I think the main thing you want to do there is eat whole foods yeah. and, and don't take your, don't take your kids to the, to, of course it's fun to go through a fast food outlet sometimes, yeah. but you know, don't make it uh, every night and, uh, and every lunch. Yeah, no, that's great advice. I really appreciate that opinion. Speaking of meat and ground beef in particular, you've done some studies where you've looked at those two things, but also compared it with, um, you know, the kind of, um, I guess, fake meat, we'll just say fake meat companies that are, that are producing food. What, what things have you learned about the difference between real ground beef versus a, a product that's made from plants to appear like ground beef? They are as different as you expect an animal and a plant to be. Okay. So they're very different. Okay. Yes. You might as well study the carrot and an egg wow. or something like that to an extent, because, you know, it's important to note. I, I mean, no, I jokingly say that because I, I haven't actually compared a carrot to an egg. But what we find was we find a 90% difference in metabolite abundance. So sure, some plant-based meal alternatives, like in terms of amino acid composition and protein, total protein amount, they may be similar. Um, some companies add uh, vitamins and minerals to their products. So you might see some similarity in there as well. Uh, though if you sort of we found different amounts of uh, different forms of vitamin B3, even mm. though the, the package just is the same amount. So there's some nuance to that, but it is really once you go beyond the nutrients that appear on nutrition effects panels, those 50 nutrients, and you look at a broader array of nutrients, then yeah, you can find things like taurine, creatine, anserine, uh, glucosamine, uh, 4-hydroxyproline, only in animal sourced foods. And we studied a uh, <clears throat> uh, soy-based plant-based meat alternative, we only found soy isoflavones in there. We've only found other phenolics in there. We only found vitamin C in there and, and things like that. So they are as different as you expect a plant and animal to be. So while they may be, and this is something subjective, but while they may be good sensory replacements, someone had once made me a vegan lasagna with an impossible burger and I could not tell wow. it had an impossible burger. Could have fooled me. Yeah, I just knew because the couple was vegan that it probably wasn't meat. Uh, <laughs> so that they later disclosed me to that to me. So maybe it could be a good sensory experience. Uh, but yeah, it's not a one-to-one nutritional replacement when you go beyond sort of proteins and fats. Yeah, going beyond proteins and fats. It looks impossible that it would be the same as a ground beef burger suit I did there. Um, so what about, so protein, everybody talks about protein and there's this claim now against Beyond Meat or Beyond Burgers, excuse me, where where they claim there was more protein than is actually in the, the, the ground beef, the, the, the fake ground beef that they make. Is that something you found as well? 
Yeah, so what we found was is that, so we did it for, uh, we standardized it for four ounces of meat. So we actually found a little bit more protein in the uh, soy-based meat alternative. So we didn't study Beyond. We studied the popular other one, a soy-based meat alternative. Um, the name is out of the paper, so that's why I, uh, gotcha. I'm absent <laughs> in saying it. But anyway, uh, the other the other one. Uh, so we studied uh, that and... There was actually higher uh, protein content. Oh, interesting! In, in the in the, it was by two grams or so, mm. uh, but we just standardized it for uh, for fat. That's what we did. Yeah, so we standardized gotcha. it for fat, and and it, so it had a little bit more protein. I think two grams more. The fat was uh, was the same. Total fat, I think, was like fifteen grams or so. Uh, yes, it was fifteen grams. Twelve percent was when we we just wanted to. We had to match it on something, and we matched it on fat because we're also interested in in more fat soluble nutrients essentially yeah so we did it standardize it for that and um so the amino acid content was largely uh, similar or you know we know that uh, soy uh there was some difference in essential amino acid composition but it's probably not very meaningful we found the major differences in, in, in the things like that do not appear on the nutrition facts panels. Because we always think of amino acids, right? And we think of essential, non-essential amino acids, but there's a couple hundred amino acids. So, uh, or amino acid derivatives, things, yeah. things like taurine or creatine, uh, which are peptides actually, but the linkage of several amino acids, uh, that, that, uh, those things were, were, were different, uh, for sure. Mm. So, there's where we, we saw this, this big difference in, uh, in, in compounds. Yeah. Gotcha. So interesting. So tell me about your research here at this facility. This is such a cool setup. Could you kind of describe what it's like to be in this facility and how, you know, you and I, we toured different floors of the facility and the main floor has, has a little kitchen and place where people can pick up food. Tell us a, a little bit about your current work here. Yeah, so the work here, I started here a year ago in the Center for Human Nutrition Studies at Utah State University. And, um, where we're sitting now, it's uh, it's it's downstairs, and downstairs we have uh, indeed a clinical research facility. So we have uh, five exam rooms, we have a big phlebotomy lab, and uh, sort of a welcoming uh, sort of a front desk. So it, 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 that's why I say it looks like a doctor's office, like you visit that. Then we have a metabolic kitchen uh, as well, and and some dining facilities. And then upstairs we have a wet lab facilities. So uh, it's where we do a lot of uh, we actually take the blood of people or uh, urine or uh, stool samples as well. And then we analyze them. So what are the impacts of different dietary patterns or different foods on inflammatory markers on the, the compounds that circulate in their blood? Because we know that roughly about 50% what circulates in our blood is directly related to the foods that we eat. So there's there's a half-truth to the saying, you are what you eat. Yeah. So that's uh, something we, we are studying often. So one thing that we're doing now is, okay, if, you know, we... We've done this profiling on plant-based meal alternatives and meat, and we find very much different profiles. What if we feed people this? Can we, does the, what circulates in their blood differs after, after eating those uh, uh, products, right? Because one contains taurine, one contains creatine, the ground beef, the other contains soy isoflavones and other phenolics that are not found in, uh, in, in, in either or, right? Can we, can we see some shifts in uh, what circulates in our blood afterwards uh, beyond just amino acids? Right, because yes, protein is very important, but it is only a part of the reason why we eat foods. Yeah. So, so that's what we're what we're doing in, in those studies. So we have a, a processing facility upstairs, like a like a wet lab. What you think of people in terms of like when you look at a yeah a laboratory yeah. essentially. So that's what it looks like. And then uh, across campus, we have a mass spec as well, and uh, and we do a lot of uh, our analysis there. So what a mass spec can do is it can 
look at a large number of individual compounds. If you know the mass of these compounds, so each compound, let's take uh, leucine as amino acids or we take vitamin B6, they have a unique molecular structure and a unique molecular mass. So you can measure those on a, on a, on a equipment. And it's the same what uh, people use for, for drug testing with athletes or, or even drug testing for uh, uh, legal purposes. Mm. So, and what we use it to measure nutritional compounds mm. in foods or, and subsequently in people. So that's, uh, that's mainly the three pillars of, of our work. And then uh, there's various, we work with various local farmers and then there's also a big animal research facility around here where we do some work with, uh, with cattle and uh, we have a study going on on milk and, and different forages. And uh, then, uh, yeah, we also do some work in, in crops as well, mm. like uh, different uh, fruits uh, also like different growing practices in fruits. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So I, to me, it seems like you're answering the more important question. It's one thing to know what is in the food, but, but more important is we want to know what is acutely happening a few hours after we eat our food. And that's what you're measuring. Yes. In one of the studies, we do both acute and long-term studies. Acute studies is nice because you can just feed people a burger or a meal, and then uh, you can measure what's in the meal, and then you can measure what's in their blood. And we've done studies in the past, these tracer studies, where you can detect amino acids from the food source already after 15 minutes. Wow. In someone's blood. Wow. So if you eat an egg, then, then 15 minutes later, we can start measuring those amino acids from the egg in your blood. Wow. So we do know that there's these shifts. And uh, um, we've done some work on fatty acids as well. And uh, there's been some elegant work from a group out of Switzerland that has done some work with yogurt and milk. And you can kind of see if you overlay the yogurt metabolome, so what's in uh, the yogurt with what's in people's blood, you, your blood kind of starts looking like yogurt a little bit, if wow. that makes sense. Yeah. At least the wow. compounds in yogurt, yeah. right? Because yeah. uh, there's some unique uh, uh, fermentation compounds mm. in there. So you can you can measure those things. Obviously, you cannot say anything about long-term health from a study with a few hours, but you can uh, uh, start to link what is in our food with what subsequently ends up in our body. And then we can do multi-week or multi-month feeding trials, randomized controlled trials, say, okay, if we then repeated this behavior or this for, for several weeks or several months, can we measure some shifts in biomarkers of your metabolism? Do you have uh, different amounts of cholesterol, triglycerides? What does your, fat, your fat, uh, fatty acid profile in your blood look like? Mm. Can we shift it towards more long-chain fatty acids? Uh, what about glucose metabolites, right? Which uh, gives an indicator of like probably future diabetes risk. Yeah. What about your mitochondria? Are you more efficient uh, in, in uh, relying on oxidative metabolism because of the food sources that you eat? Because we know that if you uh, eat more long chain, if, if foods such as grass-fed beef contain more long chain acylcarnitines, long-chain acylcarnitines are responsible for transporting fats to the mitochondria where they can be used for or energy production. So can we see shifts in that in the blood of people? Wow. So those are things that we measure. Uh, obviously, uh, as, as sort of a, you know, interventionist as opposed to an epidemiologist, I don't do epidemiological studies. I wasn't trained in that. And uh, so we cannot measure heart, heart outcomes, as I mentioned, but we can measure biomarkers that we then try to relate to other randomized controlled trials or epidemiological research, right? That's right. So, yeah. Well, people need to understand when you're looking at a study, you really need to understand some of those things because you'll get confused by maybe the title, but you don't know what question that the researcher was really asking. Yeah. You're asking acutely short-term or randomized control trial that goes a few weeks versus epidemiology. You're trying to follow a group for 
20 years, 50 years, whatever it is. And it, it's just not the same question. No. And, you know, we can have a lot of faith in research if sort of these different lines uh, line up, right? We have like epidemiological research. If the randomized controlled trials kind of show the same thing, then we do animal models. If they show the same thing. And then if the in vitro models or the single cell models show the same thing, then yeah, we can kind of start to feel confident in that uh, what we're measuring is real, right? Because there is sometimes a little bit of a disconnection between yeah epidemiology and you know for instance there's there's been many randomized controlled well not that many but probably like six eight randomized controlled trials that is are being done but we always study beef uh, and many other groups have done have done this is uh, is that as well beef for instance in terms of uh, a healthy diet beef plus a mediterranean diet beef plus a bold diet beef plus a dash diet, which are all whole foods, healthy based diets yeah. in randomized controlled trials. And then typically they show, okay, they're compatible with good health, but then epidemiology or well, the biggest meat eaters are usually the people that also eat the most junk food, right? Yeah, burgers. The most, yeah ultra processed food. So, yeah. so that becomes a, a thing there also where you, you can sometimes see a little bit of a, of, of a disconnect uh, there as well. Um, there have been randomized control trials done, also meta-analysis, uh, for instance, uh, one done, uh, done out of Harvard, and you know, then you, you find that, okay, um, the effects are, are pretty small or, or even neutral, right, on, yeah. on, on cardiometabolic uh, risk. And then, not to say that, you know, depending on people's background diet, that there may be some more benefits by increasing fruits and vegetables yeah. and things like that, but... Um, yeah, there is sometimes this, this this disconnect between, and it's something, well, I'm interested because we do some studies on meat as well. I'm, I'm always fascinated by that sort of that disconnect between epidemiology and then folks such as yourself maybe that eat a good amount of meat, but as part of a healthy diet versus randomized controlled trials where we study this as part of healthy diets too. Now, not per se carnivore diets, but whole foods diets. And then, um, uh yeah, the epidemiological research, which yeah. suggests that it's uh, it's it's bad for you. To, to to talk to you quickly about a study that we did, and hopefully we will publish this uh, next year. We just finished the metabolomics analysis on it too, but we did a bunch of the other uh, more more general blood work on it. So we did a four weeks, uh, well, it was an eight week randomized controlled trial, four weeks uh, on both diets. One was a standard American diet, and uh, and the other one we call a traditional American diet. Essentially, what we did was we looked at the USDA database and see what are the foods people most commonly consume in the U.S. diet. These are beef, milk, eggs, bell peppers, lettuce, tomatoes, potatoes, uh, carrots, and things like that. Whole we, foods. Uh, well, no, not per se, because okay. they eat potatoes as part of French fries. Okay, got it. And they uh, uh, have oranges, but they eat it as orange juice. So, because two-thirds of the American diet is ultra-processed foods. So these are the food groups. Yep. So we thought, well, what if we do, and that's what we call the traditional American diet, what if we feed those exact foods, same food groups as part of an ultra-processed diet, two-thirds uh, ultra-processed foods, which is in line with what the uh, average American is consuming? Or what if we give these same foods, what if we give the potatoes as potato fries versus whole potatoes? What if we give it as uh, uh, burgers or other things like that that uh, are uh, uh, problematic? So... If we look at those things in, in general, it's like, what are the issues then uh, if, if we consume it at whole foods or uh, ultra-processed foods? And what we found was, and then this was calorically matched. There had been a study done previously by Kevin Hall that found if people, if people ultra-processed foods, they eat 500 calories more. 
we matched it for calories, which is a pain in the butt, by the way. I'll bet. So, because people were either super full or super hungry. Yeah. Uh, depending on what they were eating. And, uh, uh, but we measured, we did a relatively good job. We, we came within like 90 calories wow. or something like that. Wow. So, but what we found was, is that people were consuming high amounts of red meat, daily red meat and potatoes, things that we think are not as healthy for you. Uh, they... Uh, all improved. Their triglycerides dropped with like forty percent in wow. like four weeks, and wow. all, because we just gave them a whole foods diet. And the, the standard American diet group, they remained the same. The reason being is because all the folks that we had in, they were habitually consuming a standard American diet, so they just stayed the same. Wow. Um, but that also tells you, of course, we don't have a third arm that was a vegan diet, right? So you could make the argument that well, we could have gotten people even healthier if they. Uh, uh, weren't eating any animal source foods, but that's that's a whole nother discussion. But what we could say is that we did make some significant improvements in in that wow. group. And uh, um, but it also tells you is that this was again a study where we feed uh, like a lot of meat. We fed it because that's you know like we have relatively high intake in the U.S., so we try to match that. Um, so that tells you that the background diet in which you consume these foods and the, the source at which you consume these food is makes a big difference. And, and oftentimes we get bogged down in like single foods, yeah. right? Like we're, we're, we're arguing whether lentils or beef are better. I mean, <sighs> if it's a part of a, if we get to that point, then great. But we're, we're really in like sort of the, the standard American diet. That's what the major issue is, right? Like these high amounts of ultra processed foods. And then in certain substitution studies, right, is where you're measuring lentils swapped out by beef, right? It's like you're probably measuring a healthier diet to begin with, right? Yeah. And that's so important also to, uh, to recognize is that while we often discuss single foods, the background diet in which you consume these is far more important. Yeah. Wow. I love that. I think about my grandparents. My grandpa is over 90. My grandma's in her, you know, late eighties and they, they do great. They're thriving. Like they've got some health issues for sure. But he, my grandpa rides his bike every day and my grandma lost a bunch of weight by stopping. Um, she stopped buying candy at the store and bringing it home. She lost like 40 pounds and, and dropped her A1C quite a bit. And like, they're not on a diet. They're not doing carnivore or vegan or anything. They're just eating like American traditional yeah. foods and doing a lot of it from scratch. And they do great. I think about like, what would a lifetime of just whole foods be for health. Like if, if they never deviated and didn't go, you know, to, to eating all of those ultra processed foods yeah. all the time. Yeah. I think that's the issue. And that's also what we found in our study. And we're even doing a study now with, uh, with foods from regenerative agriculture versus conventional agriculture. And I don't know the results yet, uh, uh, of that study, but if we look at some like general blood work, then yeah, I mean, if you take people on a whole foods diet, people are going to improve. Yeah. Irrespective of how that was, was produced. And maybe there's some nuance. I'm, I'm not sure yet whether, whether it will be differences or not. I mean, we haven't really like analyzed the data uh, to a great extent other than looking at maybe like, you know, glucose or, or yeah. triglycerides and things like that. But the, the difference was certainly not to the extent of which uh, when we gave people two thirds ultra processed foods versus whole foods. And uh, I think that that part is so important because, and, and that's this sort of nutritionism or nutritional reductionism or, or single food studies, right? Eating an ounce of almonds is not going to add six years to your life. Yeah. I think that's, that's uh, BS, to be honest with you, right? <laughs> Even though whatever, yep. whatever a study would suggest yep. to me. I mean, that's just uh, not, not the case. There's no such thing as superfoods. Yeah. Eating almonds can be part of a healthy diet, for sure. And yep. if you're eating almonds as part of a healthy diet, absolutely, it could be healthy. But a single food is not going to... Uh, um, 
you know, make or break your health. And, yeah. uh, and, and, you know, if you never ate almonds in your life, despite them being healthy, I don't think it's going to shave six years off your life. Yeah. If you have an otherwise healthy diet, that's, that's, that's nonsense, I think. <laughs> so, and that's an over, uh, yeah, exaggeration of, uh, of, of, or I should say an overinterpretation of, of, of nutrition studies. And I'm not saying oftentimes researchers, they sometimes do that, but researchers not always do that. But sometimes you notice that sort of in, in sort of, you know, Lay, lay public and we're all guilty of that right uh is that we might take findings to a little bit of yeah the, yeah we over we over interpret and over extrapolate <laughs> totally findings. Yeah. totally wow i love that that's fascinating i want to talk just a little bit about the kitchen aspect of of this facility so generally speaking if somebody is doing a study on nutrition it is epidemiological they might give you a questionnaire you fill out how many times in the last year you've had apples like might be a half of a whole apple or a half cup of canned apples. Like those are the same thing, whatever. Anyway, they're, they're terrible. They're really inaccurate. They don't really tell the whole story. They might give you an idea, but they don't, they don't give you everything. You guys have a kitchen and you were explaining to me before we started recording about some different studies that you've done where you're actually giving people some food, even just to prepare on their own. I thought that was really interesting. How is that making your research more accurate? Well, I don't know if it makes it more accurate because ours has limitations too, because, uh, um, we cannot study people for 30 years. And I mean, can I give them food for 30 years? Uh, I wish I could. But it's a trade-off because we can. We are doing a study where we source all of the foods from sort of quote-unquote regenerative farms. So these are integrated crop livestock systems, farms that grow maybe 30, 40 crops rather than, you know, monoculture crops. So things that could improve soil health, biodiversity, and the nutritional composition of food. That are some of the things that we found. But then the million dollar question is, well, regenerative agriculture all sounds good, but does it have an appreciable effect on human health? Yeah. So that's what we're doing in this study now. So we sourced everything from, from quote-unquote regenerative farms, agroecological farms is the term I prefer to use. Um, but And then we sourced everything from just your conventional non-organic produce in the grocery store. So if we get onions from the regenerative farms, we buy onions from the uh, grocery store, the non-organic ones. And we match things food for food. Uh, we also had some grains and some rice in there. So we repackaged everything so people cannot tell the difference. Well, a, a, a carrot from regenerative agriculture looks a whole lot more ugly a little, than... A little uh, different. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's, it's, it's <laughs> some soil on it. Well, we scrub those off. But sometimes you get those carrots that have like two carrots, right? Yeah. So, uh, those, and those you don't get uh, when you buy your carrots at the grocery store. They go into canned uh, products. But anyway, so... But we give them all these foods. And um, we did that for seven weeks each with a two-week washout in between. So that's an ongoing study. We, we hope to finish 36 participants and we finished about 18 this last uh, growing season. So uh, starting up again in June 2023, we'll finish the rest of the participants. And uh, that study is essentially studying what are, you know, these regeneratively sourced foods that um, have some more of these phytochemicals in there. Well, what is the effect on, on human health subsequently? Does it have an appreciable effect on human health uh, to begin with? So that's one of the first studies in that area. And with the metabolic kitchen, what we can do is indeed for, for that study, we just put everything together in, in food bags. So it's kind of like a blue apron or another yeah. uh, meal service with some uh, recipe suggestions and people make it at home. Um, the benefit of that is, is that if you make something a certain way with certain spices or tomato sauce and someone's like, oh, I don't like this, then you're kind of derail your study. Yeah. So there's, there's a, uh, a benefit for doing inpatient studies because people are all the way there. You can see every bite that they eat. We obviously cannot see that. We do ask them to bring in all the food they didn't consume. We reweigh it. We have them fill out 
uh, we use uh, an app on their phone where they got to log everything that they ate. So, and if they didn't eat it all, why didn't you eat it all and things like that? So yeah. I think we're getting, and we do middle-aged participants. So I think we're getting good uh, self-reported um, compliance and then we measure it. But yes, sometimes people say, well, what prevents them from uh, tossing it all in the trash and driving through McDonald's? Nothing. Yeah. Other than uh, sort of, you know, the the commitment to the study yeah. and, and not letting the study team down, which I think for most people is the case. And, uh, and of course, you can measure uh, metabolites in their blood. Yeah. We sometimes jokingly say to people is that uh, we uh, can, I mean, we can, I mean, if you feed people a lot of broccoli, you can see broccoli <laughs> metabolites in their blood. Or if you feed people a lot of salmon, you can see certain metabolites yeah. in their blood. So, so it is, it is true. And sometimes we, we jokingly say that uh, we, can, we can see what, what they're doing. <laughs> uh, but uh, no, we, 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 as we say it obviously with a wink, but uh, so that's, that's the thing. But, but I, I must say in epidemiological studies, we use metabolomics, but in epidemiological studies, metabolomics is also more common. So you have indeed the fruit frequency questionnaire that may not be, Super reasonably accurate, but yes, uh, how many cans of, uh, uh, how many, how much canned apples I've had uh, in the last three months is kind of hard. Uh, well, for me, zero, because I, uh, I, I don't know who eats cans of apples anyway to begin with. <laughs> but you get my point, but you can measure biomarkers too. You can do metabolomics analysis on that too. And then you could say, okay, you know, if someone has a lot of lycopene in their uh, blood, then probably they're, they're, and they're eating a lot of tomatoes and tomato ketchup, then. Probably true. Yeah. So that's ways of improving it. So there's certainly uh, uh, improvements, I should say, in both areas of the field, enabled by uh, better mass spec techniques and able to run metabolomics or lipidomics or proteomics, if you're interested in, pro in proteins or lipids, that gives you a sort of, uh, and, and lay that next to a food frequency questionnaire, that you can get a more reliable result on that. And you feel more comfortable that what you're seeing is in fact true. Yeah. Wow. That's so Fascinating. I love, I love that you could just tell by, by, you know, looking at their blood. If somebody you, you told to eat the rainbow, they just went off and eat Skittles. Like you could tell yeah. <laughs> totally the difference, the, the different rainbow. Yeah, that's, <laughs> different right. rainbow. Yeah, that's right. No, you see there, then yeah, you can see some difference in glucose metabolites, but yeah, no, there's definitely some compounds that we know are, are well known to occur in, uh, uh, you know, certain, certain foods like for phytochemicals that are very abundant in certain foods. So yeah, yeah you can definitely measure that. Very and, cool. uh, and you, what we kind of do is, is we overlay what we call the food metabolome with the, with the blood metabolome of people. And yeah, their blood looks kind of like the food that they eat. That makes bit. sense. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Wow. What other studies are you looking forward to in the future? Do you have anything like a big project in mind or a big study that would be like a dream study that you would love to do or anything that's, you know, on the radar for 2023 besides what you just talked about? So we have a, what we call beef nutrient density project. That's a multi-year study. It is defining nutrient density in beef and how different production practices impact that. We um, had our initial run of, of samples this past 2022, this year. So the goal is to get 250 farms across the U.S., 750 stakes. We now have about, I think, 120 farms or so. By the time mid-2023, we should have those analyzed. Uh, and then we are also collecting soil, forage, and uh, stool samples from the animals to look at soil health, forage quality, gut microbiome of the animal, and then the nutritional composition of the beef. You often hear the statement, healthy soils equals healthy plants equals healthy animals and healthy humans. Um, it becomes difficult when you get to the human, as we talked about <laughs> earlier. We do, a lot of, we do a lot of things, good or bad for our health. But right. anyway, uh, we look at do these practices like rotational grazing, biodiverse forages, improved soil health, do those have a beneficial effect on, on uh, the meat quality and the animal health? 
So and that's that's what we're measuring. So what we're finding now so far is is that that's what we talked about earlier with this huge variation in, in yeah. grass-fed beef, is that animals that are more biodiverse pastures, they typically have uh, the highest amounts of these phytochemicals and the lowest omega-6 to 3 ratios. So mm. more omega-3s than, than, than uh, others. So wow. a ratio of 1 or 1 to 1 is typically considered the holy grail. Typically, some farmers reach that, but I don't know if a ratio of two to one is worse than a one to one ratio. Sure. Having a little more makes I think we're working the margins by then. But anyway, we can see more phytochemicals, better fatty acid profiles in when animals are in biodiverse species. When they are monocultures, we typically see a reduction in phytochemicals mm. or when they're fat conserved forages. So when animals are fed hay, uh, we can see that. Clearly, and now that's kind of cool because we're now to the point where we can measure like maybe like three, four phytochemicals, like stachydrine uh, and methylpipicolate uh, and, and a few others, piperidine, which are well, probably meaningless to the consumer. Everybody knows that. Come on. Yeah, of course. I mean, <laughs> stachydrine is, 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 is rich in alfalfa. So you can kind of see mm. people, a lot of food of people, alfalfa hay. So, but you can uh, uh, measure that. So it's also a cool way of doing, uh, hopefully, authentication in the future that you can kind of see like, oh, were these animals technically grass-fed, but they were on hay and not on, on uh, fresh pasture. So those are things to, to look at. And then we typically see a reduction in phytochemicals in feedlot beef. But I will say feedlot beef isn't feedlot beef isn't feedlot beef either because what you're seeing in, in there is, is that uh, depending on how the byproducts are fed, uh, how much space the animals have, if people feed a little bit more alfalfa or if they're feeding phytochemically rich byproducts like potato peels or grape pumas or things like that, then you can, yeah, you can still, you know, get a pretty good profile too. So uh, it's it's when you're feeding like high amounts of corn because we know corn is very low in these, these phytochemicals. Mm. So Yeah. Wow. Well, that is fascinating. This has been an awesome conversation. I'm just thinking, you know, if I'm the listener sitting in this conversation, I would be thinking to myself like this, this is fun. This is fun stuff to talk about. It's fun to, you know, learn all the particulars and, and try to suss out like what's going to be the optimal diet for, for me and how much of this vitamin and that vitamin. And, and to almost like get this message of like, you know what, it's okay to kind of chill out. You should focus on getting whole foods. You should probably trust your own innate, um, you know, the, the wants, the desires, what am I hungry for? What sounds good to me? I, I think that's a really, like you said, wise, I think it's a wise way to live and, and, and acquire what we need from the land. And I think that's a really hopeful message. Are there any other comments you'd like to leave for the no, listeners? No, I think what you said is so, so important. Indeed. It's like, if you're craving, uh, some fish, you should probably eat fish. And if you're craving some lentils, you should probably eat lentils. Or if you're craving some dairy or cheese, stuff like that. Right. Once you start craving Doritos, then, uh, yeah, you have to take a step back and thinking like, mm, maybe th- I'm not truly craving that. Uh, right. Cause you're, you're sort of, uh, but in terms of whole foods, then yes, I mean, you know, and there's, it's, this is notoriously hard to prove in, in humans uh, that we have this innate wisdom. In animals, we know that for sure, is that an animal, if they have a certain nutrient deficiency, they kind of know what to eat. Um, many animal species have that. And uh, even a famous study from Clara Davis in children in an orphanage in the 1930s, they kind of knew if the children had uh, uh, like scurvy, they, they were looking for, for, for maybe uh, citrus fruits. And if they had an iron deficiency, they'd seek out liver and things like that, right? They kind of knew. It's hard to imagine that we're the only species on earth that yeah. uh, don't know what uh, to kind of know what's good for us. But it's super hard in our environment with ultra processed foods, of course. But yes, if you focus on whole foods, um, I think then you're already at, at a good place. And, you know, 
even if you go from a standard American diet to a whole foods diet, initially maybe it tastes a little bland, but I've heard this from many people that say like, well, after about eight weeks, it's like my oatmeal started to taste sweet or something totally. like that, or, or I started to actually enjoy a potato yeah. rather than it uh, being French fries. So you start to kind of acquire those, those tastes again. And, um, I think that's so important that the focus on whole foods and whether you land on more animal source foods or, or, or more plant source foods, right? It's kind of, it's so hard to make like one uh, size fits all recommendations. We're also different as humans and difference in metabolism, difference in culture, difference in preferences. I think for most of us, yeah, we, we do good if we fall on this, omnic uh, this uh, spectrum of omnivory, including some animal source foods, plant source foods. The ratios might vary from time, life stage and things like that. But yeah, I, I'd say do what you feel good at as long as it doesn't mean that you're eating uh, pizza, cookies, pastries, and uh, and fast food all the time. There you then go. Uh, uh, it's, it's probably good to uh, rationalize it a little bit more. Yep. Wow, I love that. It's very wise and a great way to end this conversation. Dr. Stefan Van Vliet, where would you like people to go to find you and connect with you in your work? So I am active on Twitter, at Van Vliet PhD. So my last name, Van Vliet, and the letters PhD. So you can find me on Twitter, uh, my Google Scholar profile. And if you, yeah, if you Google me, uh, you can probably find uh, lots of studies and, and other uh, uh, information on me. And uh, people are always, uh, yeah, welcome to send me a nice and respectful email. So. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, thank you very much. Thank you so much for this conversation. This is really meaningful. And I, I love coming up here and seeing this facility in person and understanding a little bit better some of the amazing research you're doing. So thank you so very much for taking the time to be on our show today. We really appreciate you. Thank you so much, Casey. Lovely uh, that you were able to visit. That was great. Such an honor. And this has been another episode of Boundless Body Radio. At the close of one year and the beginning of a new year, I just wanted to make sure to thank you, the listener, for all of your support and for listening to our show. 2022 was an amazing year that saw lots of growth with the podcast, but also came with amazing results with the people that we get to work with in our business, Boundless Body. We began our business during the confusion of the 2020 pandemic and opened up in July of that year. And we've been absolutely amazed with how things have gone. It was a lot of blood, sweat, and tears and a lot of building the plane as we were flying it, but it's turned out amazing. We just absolutely love seeing our clients get amazing results. We love seeing all the great feedback and positive reviews that come through on Apple. So if you haven't already, please leave us a review there on Apple as it's the best way for the show to continue to grow and impact the lives of people all over the world. We're super excited for 2023. We already have lots of great guests and topics lined up, and we have no intention of slowing down our releases anytime soon. Also, feel free to check out our premium content, which we post on Patreon. There you will find our extended and unedited episodes, which we post on the day of recording. So you actually don't have to wait for the edited version of the podcast to release, which can sometimes be several weeks, actually. And on Patreon, you will also find the Boundless Body Radio premium podcast. This was my special project this year. I really wanted to combine all of the very best clips about one topic from our show to combine into extended episodes that take a very deep dive into a topic. I've created two separate topics as a masterclass that are three episodes each. One is all about the macronutrients and the second
second is all about keto and ketogenic diets. That way you can get a fantastic education from some of our amazing guests and a format that can help you zero in on the topic that you are most interested in, something I'm very proud of and believe that we are sharing this content for a very high value. Remember that you can also book a complimentary 30-minute session with us on our website at myboundlessbody.com. And thank you again so very much for listening to Boundless Body Radio.